Let's turn now to the Gospel of Matthew, Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27. We'll read verses 11 through 31. Matthew 27, commencing at verse 11. Hear the word of God. And Jesus stood before the governor. And the governor asked him, saying, Art thou the king of the Jews? And Jesus said unto him, Thou sayest. And he, when he was accused of the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. Then said Pilate unto him, Hearest thou not how many things they witness against thee? And he answered him to never a word, insomuch that the governor marveled greatly. Now at that feast, the governor was wont to release unto the people a prisoner whom they would. And they had then a notable prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they were gathered together, Pilate said unto them, Whom will ye that I release unto you, Barabbas or Jesus, which is called Christ? For he knew that for envy they had delivered him. When he was set down on the judgment seat, his wife sent unto him, saying, Have thou nothing to do with that just man? For I have suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitude that they should ask Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said unto them, Whither of the twain will ye that I release unto you? They said, Barabbas. Pilate saith unto them, What shall I do then with Jesus, which is called Christ? They all say unto him, Let him be crucified. And the governor said, Why? What evil hath he done? But they cried out the more, saying, Let him be crucified. And Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, but that rather a tumult was made. He took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. See ye to it. Then answered all the people and said, His blood be upon us and on our children. Then released he Barabbas unto them, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the common hall and gathered unto him the whole band of soldiers, and they stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe. And when they had plaited a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head in a reed in his right hand, 
And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit upon him and took the reed and smote him on the head. And after that they had mocked him, they took the robe off from him and put his own raiment on him and led him away to crucify him. Thus far, the sobering word of God. Dear church family, when a person is unconverted, passion sermons can be interesting, it can be touching when you hear about the sufferings of Jesus, and yet You can't quite relate. You don't deeply feel the value of the sufferings of the Savior. And so there's something that makes you feel like you're outside that inner circle of the people of God who treasure the Passion Weeks in which we focus on what our Savior has done for us. But if you are saved, you see, these Passion Weeks are like a gift of God. As we get to hear from week to week what our Lord has done. They, they hold, especially when we get to Gethsemane and Gabbatha and Golgotha, those last 24 hours where Christ pours out His life for us. They, they hold a, a large place in our heart. And we begin, and it's only a beginning here on earth, we begin to understand more and more of the loving, substitutionary obedience of Jesus. And that our whole life, our whole life is wrapped up in that. Well, we hear lots of sermons in Passion Season normally about Gethsemane, and about Golgotha, but not quite so many about Gabbatha. And that place, which is the judgment hall of Pilate, is also a very intense place of the sufferings of our Lord. This morning, I want to focus with you only on one little aspect of his sufferings at Gabbatha. And that is the crowning of Jesus with thorns. The crowning of Jesus with thorns. Our text is Matthew 27, verse 29. And when they had plaited a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head in a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. So with God's help this morning, I want to preach to you about Jesus' crown of thorns. We'll look at three thoughts 
We'll see this crown as a symbol of his prophesied suffering. Second, a symbol of his priestly substitution. And thirdly, a symbol of his kingly love. So the crown of thorns is is really very symbolic. There's just so much in this crown of thorns to talk about. But I want to look at it with you through the lens of his threefold office, prophet, priest, and king. His prophesied suffering, his priestly substitution, his kingly love. Now the first thing to say about this crown of thorns is that in one sense, a crown that belongs to a king is something very special. And this crown can be viewed as a kind of comprehensive symbol of all the sufferings of Jesus. Because it's not a crown of happiness, it's a crown of sorrow and thorns, and blood. Now, to understand this, we need to to back up a few steps. Jesus had already suffered a great deal at the hands of wicked Roman soldiers and some of his fellow Jews who had hated him. He had been led from one judge to another. He had been roughly treated brutally handled all night long. The Roman soldiers had cruelly abused the guiltless Savior with a kind of sadistic pleasure. They rudely mocked the one who had gently ministered to so many. And they did so much of this in the courtroom of Pontius Pilate, the judgment hall, the Roman governor, a place called Gabbatha. Jesus' Roman trial began early on what we now call Good Friday morning. First, the Jews delivered Jesus to the Gentile governor, Pilate, to be tried. When Pilate learned that Jesus came from Galilee, he sent him to Herod. He was trying to get out of it, of course. Herod mocked Jesus dressed him in a gorgeous robe, sent him back to Pilate for another interrogation. Once again, finding no fault in Jesus, Pilate attempts, and that's where we pick up in our reading this morning, Pilate attempts to release Jesus. Meanwhile, his wife has this terrible dream about Jesus and says to Pilate, don't have anything to do with this just man. Verse 19. The priests and elders, meanwhile, persuade the people that they should demand that Barabbas gets released and Jesus be crucified. And ultimately, Jesus hands, rather Pilate, hands Jesus over to be scourged and to be crucified. And when that happens, all wickedness is let loose. The soldiers torture Jesus. 
They plait together a crown of thorns, very sharp things, put it on Jesus' head, bring Jesus out before the people, wearing the kingly robe and the crown of thorns, and then carry him away to be crucified. Now Matthew, particularly of all four Gospels, describes this scene of the soldier's wickedness most intimately. Our text says, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the common hall. Now the common hall, sometimes called the praetorium, was probably adjacent to the judgment hall where Pilate normally sat. And when you think of the judgment hall, you could include the common hall. And so we call this whole place Gabbatha. So during a break in Jesus' trial, the soldiers take Jesus into their quarters, into this large room, to mock him and to mistreat him. They then gather the band of Roman soldiers stationed for the Passover at this time in Jerusalem, probably up to 600 of them. And this Roman band, or sometimes called a Roman cohort, we would probably call it a battalion today, men who are highly trained, men who are rough and brutal and unloving, they, in their sadistic motivations, see an opportunity to vent their hatred against the rebellious Jews and against Jesus, and so they make the most of mocking Jesus in this large room. They mock his kingly dignity by throwing a kingly robe over his bloody shoulders. They mock his kingly power by putting a flimsy reed into his hands. His kingdom, they shout, is like a flimsy scepter. He's powerless. They have him under control. And they mock his kingly authority by taking with wicked hands branches and breaking them from a long spiked thorn bush and weaving the branches into a crown. And they mock his kingly honor rudely coming before him, laughing at him, bowing down before him as the king, trying to outdo each other, spitting him in the face, slapping him in the face. Majesty is in misery. The soldiers stand before Jesus in pure mockery. And Jesus endures all of this contradiction of sinners against himself with not a single word of opposition. In one stroke, he could have wiped them all out. All he had to do was say, like he did to the Roman cohort just earlier, I am, and express his deity, and they would have all fallen backward. But he does nothing. And so they sarcastically get more and more carried away. They cry out, Hail, King of the Jews! Long live the King! They sarcastically taunt him. 
They've reopened the stinging wounds of denial and rejection. And with increasing ridicule, they slap his face. They, they hurl great insults at their innocent victim. They spit directly in his face to show their contempt. And then in the ultimate act of humiliation, they take his so-called kingly, scepter-like reed out of his hand, and they beat him over the head, causing the thorns to penetrate deeper and the blood to run faster. Why? Why all this wickedness? Why all this injustice? Why all this suffering poured upon Jesus, the innocent one, the Son of God? Well, there are three main reasons. And one is because he's our prophet. Another because he's our priest. Another because he's our king, dear child of God. And so the first reason Jesus had to go through all this was because these things were necessary for salvation to be fulfilled. They were necessary even for the prophecies of the Old Testament to be fulfilled. Jesus had prophesied he would be delivered unto the Gentiles and should be mocked and spitefully entreated and spitted on, Luke 18.32. And Peter said it was God's plan that, Acts 4.27, that both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel should be gathered together against Jesus. Peter also says in Acts 3, God before had showed by the mouth of all his prophets that Christ should suffer. And we read in Luke 24, Thus it is written, thus it behooved Christ to suffer. So the crown, the crown of thorns, is a symbol of Christ's prophesied sufferings. And the cruel wickedness of these soldiers is a part of God's foreordained plan. You see, we must remember that God foreknew the sin of these wicked men. Even though God is not the author of sin, in His inscrutable wisdom, He only used their wickedness to fulfill all the Old Testament types and prophecies. And so we read in Acts 2 that Jesus was delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, and yet these men are the ones who have taken and with wicked hands have committed these great evils. Now, of course, you and I are prone to think, all of us, I'm sure, well, I, I can't understand why they did this and how, how could they ever do this? How could they abuse someone so innocent? But if we know our own hearts a little bit, you see, we, we too, we too can accuse people of wrong things and treat people badly. Boys and girls, if you're in a classroom at school and someone is not very popular, maybe, maybe you too have sometimes kind of mocked 
another boy or another girl. Or maybe, maybe they don't seem to be very smart or maybe they don't seem to be able to understand everything you understand or and maybe you poke fun of them in some way. But it goes much deeper than that. You see, really, every sin we do, we commit against God. In a sense, every sin is a slap in the face of Jesus. And every sin is, is a thorn in His crown. And if you're a believer, if you're a believer, you see, you understand when I say to you, don't you, that those thorns and that crown, symbolically, are, are, are my sins. They're your sins. Every, every sin that we commit, our Lord has to pay for. That's symbolized in that crown of many thorns. So we're not talking here just about physical pain, but we're talking about the whole humiliation of Jesus, all the experience of his soul. It wasn't just the blood that was running down from the thorns. It was the bleeding suffering of his soul, being forsaken of all men, forsaken even of his own father as the time went on in these horrendous sufferings. The sufferings of his soul were the soul of his sufferings, the Puritans used to say. And so when we see Jesus bleeding from head to toe in Gabbatha, when we see him being mocked, when we see and hear the reed coming down upon his thorns, the most amazing thing of all is who this one is who is willing to be so mocked, so suffer, and to be so humiliatingly treated. This is the Lord of glory. This is the maker of the universe. This is Him of whom Scripture says, without Him was not anything made that was made. He's the one who before the beginning was with God. Who had fellowship with God. Face to face. Who's very God of very God. Who upholds all things by the word of His power. This is the one. Being mocked. Suffering. The one who said, My delights are with the sons of men. The one who comes down and becomes bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh. He is rejected. He is crowned with thorns. If you picture this in your mind, surely you will agree with me. This crown of thorns is a symbol. A symbol not only of Jesus' prophesied sufferings, but a symbol especially of his priestly substitution. That's, that's our second thought. His priestly substitution. Let's go back into the soldier's common hall again. Look at this now from another perspective. 
the man being crowned at the hands of the Roman soldiers. He's the Lord's anointed. He's the Son of God. He's not only the prophesied prophet. He's the great high priest who took on himself the form of a servant. He's a suffering servant of whom Isaiah prophesied. Who perfectly fulfilled the law. All Ten Commandments. Loving God above all. Loving his neighbors himself. So that we might have a right to eternal life. And who perfectly paid for sin. The hell that sin deserves. Even now as he's being crowned with thorns. So in this double obedience as priest, active obedience to the law, passive suffering obedience to pay for sin, Jesus, you see, cannot speak when the crown of thorns is being put on his head. He cannot resist because he's taking the place of the guilty. He's taking the place of you, dear child of God. And so there's no word to defend himself. He answers nothing. He the guilty. He who knew no sin became sin. That we may be made the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He's the great high priest. Bearing this crown of thorns as your substitute, dear child of God. And so the thorns, you see, the thorns themselves are a symbol of God's curse upon sin. God's curse upon disobedience. That was already true in Genesis 3. When Adam sinned, God said, you know, you will till the ground. There will be thorns and thistles. And in Hebrews 6, 7 and 8, we read that the earth drinketh in the rain that cometh often upon it and brings forth herbs Meet for them by whom it is dressed, receiving blessing from God. But that which bears thorns and briars is rejected and is nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be burned. So the thorns, according to the Bible, are a symbol of God's curse upon sin. So what's happening is when that crown of thorns come upon Jesus' head... God is picturing for you and me something these cruel soldiers never dreamed of. That God Himself in Jesus is taking the place of poor, needy, hellworthy sinners like you and me. Bearing our curse. Bearing the curse of sin. So that we who deserve to be crowned with thorns forever in everlasting hell, may one day wear the crown of righteousness in the realm of glory, in the land of perfection. And that's why they crown the only one who could be our Savior, the only one who could pay for our sins, Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. The one who is holy and harmless and undefiled, and separate from sinners. How is it possible that he could so suffer and die for people like us? Well, the Bible says that's why he came. He came to be a substitute. 
He came to be a priest for sinners who could not be a priest for themselves. He says in Psalm 40, Lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written to me. I delight to do thy will, O my Father, O my God. See, Jesus comes under the dark shadow of the divine curse that came into God's universe through sin. So that we, the masterpiece of God's creation, we who formed that dark curse by our rebellion against God, will have Jesus come and pay for that dark curse, symbolized by the crown of thorns. And so He's the one who's in our place. He's the Son of Man who takes your place, dear believer, with this crown of substitution. This crown that you should have worn throughout eternity to come in everlasting condemnation. He carries it. He bears it. It's pressed into Him so that He can pay the total price of your every sin. He is standing, dear child of God, He's standing in that judgment hall of Pilate, crowned with thorns, mocked with a purple robe, spat upon, rejected for you, so that you would not have to be rejected, so that you could wear the crown of righteousness. But you see the flip side of this. It's it's somber. The flip side of this is that if you have not been brought to repentance before Jesus, if you've not been brought to believe in Him alone for salvation, if you're still unsaved, then if you go on that way, what's going to happen is you have to bear your own crown of thorns. Your own sins will penetrate you forever and ever in hell. You can't have another substitute. You can't meet God in your own righteousness. You need to be in Christ if you're going to be crowned with a crown of righteousness in the great day, it's the only way, the only way to be saved. And so you see the symbolism of this crown is, is so profound, you see. To be crowned with the curse of sin is the only fitting crown for Jesus in this life because He had to bear our sin so that He could be set free. And that we could be set free in Him. And so He doesn't reject it. He doesn't respond to it. He doesn't resist it. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet He opened not His mouth, Isaiah 53 says. The silence of Jesus at Gabbatha is deafening. That's why Pilate marveled. (laughs) Aren't you even going to defend yourself? Look at that back in uh, verse 13. Pilate said to him, Hearest thou not how many things they witness against thee? And he answered him, 
not a word, insomuch that the governor marveled greatly. Who, who won't defend themselves when they're innocent? Well, Jesus won't because he was taking the place of the guilty. He who knew no sin, think of that, became sin. The, the sinless Son of God is willing to, to become, as it were, Luther called it a little rashly, the greatest sinner that ever lived. He means it not literally, but substitutionally. To take our place, to take the place of all the redeemed, all the elect given to Him from all eternity. Millions upon millions. He bears all that sin to replace, to replace what the first Adam has undone. First Adam, first Adam's sin caused thorns. The last Adam was tortured with thorns for the fallen sons of Adam so we could be set free. Adam's sin brought shame and nakedness. Jesus was stripped and made naked and shame for the sons of Adam. Adam's sin caused the earthly paradise to be hedged around with thorns so that no one could enter. But by enduring thorns, the second Adam opened the way to a better Eden, the eternal paradise of heaven. Behold the wisdom of God. Behold the amazing way of the gospel. The curse for sin of the first Adam was removed by the suffering for sin of the last Adam. But he, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. Mary Winslow once wrote to her son, Octavius Winslow. She said, all the thorns in my Savior's crown are my sins. And if he only died for me, if he had only died for me, there would not be one less thorn in his crown. You understand that? Jesus had to go through everything he went through just for you, dear believer. The enormity, the enormity of our sin. We can't even begin to begin to come close to paying for any of our sin. We can't pay... One penny, boys and girls, for any of our sins. Because we're still sinning. It's all through Jesus. Our crown, our thorn-crowned Savior. And you see, when we see Him in these sufferings, when we picture Him with this crown of thorns, we ought to, we ought to be filled with hatred for sin. Hatred for sin. What has my sin done to my Lord of glory? Like Zechariah 12.10 says, we have to mourn over what our sins have done to Him. To look upon the well-beloved. How ashamed we ought to be. And yet how amazed we ought to be that Jesus was willing to undergo all that He underwent for the kind of people 
that we are. It's just amazing. John Kelvin said this, First, we ought to consider what we have deserved, and then next, the satisfaction offered by Christ ought to awaken us to confident hope. Our filthiness deserves that God should hold us in abhorrence and that all the angels should spit upon us. But Christ, in order to present us pure and unspotted in the presence of the Father, resolved to Himself be spat upon and to be dishonored by every kind of reproach so that we could be honored and set free. This is the gospel. Priestly, substitutionary obedience of Jesus. Jesus, was he stripped of his clothes? It was so that we might be clothed with his righteousness. Did he wear a crown of thorns? It was so that we might wear a crown of glory. Was he mocked and reviled? It was so that we might be honored and blessed. He's the great priest who sits on his throne Mounted in the heavens, the throne of God and of the Lamb. He sits there now, exalted as our substitute. And he says in Revelation 23, 22, verse 3, And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and His servants shall serve Him forever. Well, one day, dear child of God, you will be with him sin-free in Emmanuel's land because he was willing to be crowned with thorns for your sake. And there, there shall be no more death, no more curse, no more wrath, no more sea. There your great priest-king who was willing to be crowned for you, to be cursed for you, will be your king to guide you and lead you and bless you forever and ever in glory. Well, this crown of thorns not only symbolizes Jesus as prophet for his people and as priest for his people, but peculiarly as king. The soldiers mockingly honor Jesus saying, Hail, King of the Jews. What they didn't realize was that this is who he really was, king of the Jews and of the Gentiles. They didn't understand. You can only understand when you have a heart of faith what it means for Jesus to be king, to be Lord of your entire life. And so this symbol of thorns upon Jesus is a symbol also of his kingly love what he's willing to endure for the sake of his own. Throughout this chapter, Jesus is repeatedly mocked as a king. Pilate asks him, Art thou the king? Jesus responds positively. Herod mocks him as a king, dresses him in a royal robe. The soldiers insultingly, insultingly shouted him, Hail, King of the Jews! The Jews cry out, we have no king but Caesar. The title above the cross says, will soon say, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. You see, ultimately it's all about 
His kingship. Who is king? Who's Lord over their lives? Who's king? Who's Lord over your life? Jesus' kingship is at the center of their mockery. The crown, the reed scepter, the kneeling worship, all of these cruel actions seek to dishonor the kingly character of Jesus. Even the words, Hail, King. The word hail was actually an announcement of honor. It was a joyful greeting. It was a wish for extended happiness and glory. The same kind of expression continues even today. In fact, in German, people say heil. In English, we have the expression, long live the king. But you see, this is done in total mockery. Long live the King Jesus. And they despise him. They despise his person. They despise his mission. He came into the world to establish his spiritual kingdom. But to the human eye in Gabbatha, it was all a failure. It was a mission failed. But you see, Jesus' mission had not failed. Even the loving king's suffering was part of God's eternal plan. King Jesus willingly suffered humiliation to execute that plan. Though he was equal with God, Philippians 2 says, he made himself of no reputation. He willingly surrendered the use of all his kingly power in the flesh. He He veiled his deity. He veiled his regal authority so that he could suffer and die to become the king of his people and make them his willing subjects. And so the eyes of the mocking soldiers, just like the eyes of every unconverted person, are closed to the royal majesty of their innocent so-called victim. They did not know the almighty power he possessed in his divine scepter. The only way you can know that is if his Holy Spirit comes into your heart and breaks you down to worship him as the king of kings. And when you see him as king and you bow before him as willing subject by pure amazing grace then you see His kingly love. Then you see His kingly beauty. Then you see Him as a king who is willing to lay down His life for His subjects. And you are made willing to lay down your life for the King of kings. Oh, then you can say with the Apostle Paul, He loves me and gave Himself for me. What a king. Kings of this world are only interested in their own power for the most part. But this king loves his subjects. Paul could say that Jesus loved him because he had given himself for me. And so why Why do we know, dear believers, this morning, 
that Jesus loves us. It's not because we treat him so well. (laughs) Far from that. We know he loves us because we go by spirit-worked faith to a place called Gabbatha. And we see what he bore there for us. We see the reality of his love in the crown of thorns. We see that he will go through anything, pay any price to love us. Not even the cross will hold him back. Oh, the love of this king for sinners like you and me. The crown of thorns symbolizes his kingly love. And what that means, dear friend, is that you can trust this king. You can trust this king with any sorrow, with any affliction, with any darkness, with any shadow that enters your life. This thorn-crowned king is in total control. Total control of every temptation, trial, he sends your way. This is his great salvation. That he's Lord over every detail of your life. It's all symbolized by the crown of thorns. And so through his sufferings, he can say to us, For true believers, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. And we can say to him, we love him because he first loved us. And then we don't bow before him in mockery. We bow before him in authenticity. And when we say, Hail King, we mean, Long live the King of Kings. So different. So different from what we are by nature. By nature, we say, We are lords. Jeremiah 2.31 We will no more come unto thee. We will not have thee to be lord over us. And like the soldiers, we try to tear ourselves away from Jesus' self-asserted kingship. But you see, when you're saved, the Holy Spirit enters your life and conquers you and teaches you, greater love hath no man than this, that he layeth down his life for enemies. That's what Jesus has done. He's crowned with thorns because he's willing to lay down his life as a king of kings for hell-worthy people like you and me. There's no kingdom like this kingdom. There's no king like this king. There's no service like this king's service. It's all built on love. Pure love. Eternal love. You know, even Napoleon, 
with all his hunger for power, realized, at least outwardly, something of this truth. You know his famous words. He said, I have established my kingdom by force, and it must perish. But Jesus Christ has established his kingdom upon love, and it will abide forever. Well, let me close this sermon with five five applications. The first is this. You need to rest. We need to rest in our thorn-crowned Savior. You know, sometimes birds build their nests in the midst of thorn bushes because the thorns protect them from enemies. Symbolically speaking, the thorns of Jesus protect us as well. We need to build our nest in the thorn crown of Christ. We need to fly into his wounds. We need to hide in the cleft of God's great rock, the thorn crowned Savior. No safer place for sinners. Satan can't reach you there. Sin can't even reach you there. When you're in Christ, you've got rest, real rest forever. Secondly, let us use Jesus' thorn crown as a medicine. A medicine to sustain us in our afflictions. A medicine to cure us of our discontentment, our anxiety, our worldliness. See, by fixing our minds on his crown, we will never have reason to complain about what we suffer or why we suffer, nor find reason to set our hearts into this poor, perishing world as if this is our final abode. By using this medicine, there is a cure for every spiritual disease if we take refuge in the suffering of our Savior. Thirdly, let us see in Jesus' thorns and crown our example of how to endure persecution. Jesus, Jesus himself said, if any man come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. He's a priestly substitute to save us. But he's also our priestly example that we are to follow. Whatever suffering comes our way, we are to bear it because we're called to bear it as followers of Jesus. And that can give us great strength and great hope in the midst of suffering. Peter put it this way in 1 Peter 2, 21 through 23. Even hereunto were you called because Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps, who did no sin, 
neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously. You see, you're called, I'm called, to follow the example of our master. We're called to suffer with him so that we might one day reign with him. We're called to suffer persecution. This world will crown you with its thorns of rejection and mockery and rebellion against the Lord and his anointed. But seek grace in his crown of thorns, in his perseverance at Gabbatha, to follow him, to bear your cross, to humble yourself in obedience to your Father's will, and consider how little you suffer for him compared to how much he suffers, suffered for you. And then fourthly, his crown of thorns is a call to service. It's a call to service. Count Zinzendorf, an 18th century leader of a pietistic movement in Germany, once read these words in a museum. I suffered this for thee. What hast thou done for me? And those words changed his life. Then they ought to change ours as well. We ought to crown him with many crowns, but good crowns for the crown of his merits. Let us crown him with gratitude. Let us crown him with our love and enthrone him with our praises. Let us scepter him with our obedience and in reverent worship bow before him. Let us proclaim him our only king by our personal testimony to others. Let us defy all the mocking world for his sake. Let us be willing to bear scorn and rejection, knowing He's been there for us. Spurgeon put it so beautifully. He said, if the world crown you with thorns, you may be sure that the points of the thorns are broken off first. For Christ had them on His head. He's taken away all their sharpness. Crown Him with many crowns. The Lamb upon His throne. Hark! How the heavenly anthem drowns all music but its own. Awake my soul and sing of him who died for thee and hail him as thy matchless king through all eternity. And finally, number five. My dear unbelieving friend, the only crown that the world will ever give Jesus, the King of Kings, is a mock crown. It's not enough to come to church, to be outwardly decent person. You've got to bend the knee to the King of Kings. Otherwise, you will be guilty of mocking Him. And some of you, some of you, I'm afraid, have mocked him with good resolutions that have not led to genuine repentance and faith and obedience and life change. You've mocked him by hearing his invitations and rejecting them, by going your own way, by thinking that somehow, somehow on the day of judgment, things are going to be okay for you without Jesus. 
But I say to you with love, if you continue to reject him, he will reject you. You either must bear the cross or you will perish by the cross. Oh, that you would quit your crimes of unbelief against the mercies of God. That you would bend the knee, mock no longer, and remember that the King of Kings will soon return in royal splendor. Behold the man, said Pilate. And I say to you today, my unconverted friend, behold the man, behold majesty and misery. He's willing to be your God. He's willing to be your Savior. He's willing to be your Lord, your prophet, your priest, your king. Behold him. Bend the knee before him. And don't rest until you too can sing with the poet, all hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him, crown him, crown him, crown him Lord of all. Oh, that with yonder sacred throng we at his feet may fall. We'll join the everlasting song and crown him. Crown him, crown him, crown him, Lord of all. Amen. Great God of heaven, oh, help us to crown him genuinely and not mockingly, thy well-beloved Son, and to bow under his prophetical teaching, his priestly substitution and intercession, and his kingly guidance, and to crown him as our Lord, as our King, now and forever. Please be with those in our midst, Lord, who do not yet know what this means experientially for their own soul. Oh, become too strong for them, we pray, and grant them bowing grace, surrendering grace, and if they cannot come to Thee by faith, may they come to Thee for faith, And cry out, grant me what I cannot give myself. But don't let them go on, Lord, under their own kingship. Or, God forbid, under Satan's kingship. But let them bow, bow and crown thee, Lord of all. In Jesus' name, amen.